Hey guys, welcome back to Who Knew We Didn't. My name is Marta, and my partner in podcast here is Megan. I'm yes! back. I'm here. Um, it, at Who Knew We Didn't, we cover psychological studies that influence your life and how psychology plays a part in your life. And so today we are talking about addictions. Yes, in follow up to Marta's most recent and brilliant study study, we are talking about addictions in more depth. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I don't know how brilliant it was, but we are talking about addictions in more depth for sure. I'm going to be asking Megan some questions about addictions uh, and she will be answering them with evidence and stuff. But my first question is, Megan, how was your wedding? It was really, really good. It was fun. It was successful, obviously, because I'm married now. So that's a plus. Um, Yeah, it was it was awesome food, open bar, party all night. Oh, that's awesome. Sick dance party, like crazy wild dance party, which was... From the pictures I saw, it looked yeah. like there was a lot of dancing. Yeah, there was a lot of dancing. It was it was very nice. And um, Taylor and my family, all of our family met each other. So, like, everybody legit knows each other. We've been together for, like, almost eight years. And so everybody knows who everyone is in our but families. Now they know but more. a lot of them hadn't met. So it was awesome. And, like, it was without a hitch. Like, everybody loved each other. It was great. Getting hitched without a hitch. Exactly. Ooh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Work your reminder on like your work calendar was getting hitched. Yeah. And every time I saw that every day when I was doing your reminders, I'm like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, so in my study study episode, I tried to keep it like pretty vague on some of the things. I only really wanted to focus on the studies. Mm-hmm. So we're going to go more into like everything else about addiction. Do you care well, to help me out? Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I believe that there are a series of questions that you're going to ask me, and I'm going to answer them. So, yeah, I don't know about everything else there is about addictions. We do only have about an hour to work with. But True. hopefully we'll be able to um, explore the psychology side of addictions in pretty good depth and learn some shit. Perfect. Yeah. Also, listeners, we are recording in my car again. Yes, this is our first car recording in a while. If you hear water droplets, that's us sweating our asses off. Because it's uh, so fucking finally hot. fucking warm in Canada. <laughs> Holy Christ. Yeah, uh, and we're not used to this. So, anyway. Also, to- on that note, we are coming to you live from a Tim Hortons parking lot. <laughs> Hashtag most Canadian thing ever. Yeah, really? <laughs> Uh, Okay, so to addiction. First, Megan, what is an addiction, technically speaking? Okay, well, technically speaking, it depends on who you ask. I found a few different resources that had um, their own sort of unique way of phrasing it. But generally, um, the, the first definition that I found was from the National Institute on Drug Abuse, and they classify addictions as chronic relapsing psychiatric disorders characterized by compulsive and discontrolled use of a drug or activity with dysfunctional and destructive outcomes. Although the use of addictive substances is voluntary, addiction leads to the loss of volition. So like when you're addicted to something, it's not a choice anymore. It's a necessity. Um, Now, the American Society of Addiction Medicine, ASAM, a Sam. Um, I will be talking about them later, so remember that one. Uh, <laughs> a Sam. A Sam uh, released a statement saying that addiction is a primary chronic disease of brain reward, motivation, memory, and related circuitry, which I liked because a lot of the resources that I found equated addiction just with um, sus- substance abuse, but there are, of course, addictions that are not at all substance related, so I liked that one. Um, and I also found some good resources through Cam. 
CMH, the Center uh, for Addiction and Mental Health. If anyone uh, listening now has listened to uh, our past episodes about the mental health series, then you have heard my spiel about uh, what a stellar organization CAMH is. And you'll also know that they're a leading organization in the field of addiction um, research and treatment. And I find they do a really good job of putting these sorts of conversations into like more practical and applicable language. So um, CAMH summarizes addiction using the presence of what they call the four C's, craving, loss of control or uh, pardon me, loss of control of amount or frequency of use, compulsion to use and uh, use despite consequences. Um, So for my own understanding, I basically boiled this down to uh, meaning compulsion and reliance or dependency. Use despite consequences. I feel like that, like, I feel like all of those things like stand alone don't mean addiction i think it's all those things together yeah, yeah yeah the presence of all four c's okay yeah um my next question is what's the difference between a habit and an addiction like if i do something regularly am i addicted to it um no not necessarily so for this question i found an addiction treatment center in utah that had a really good clean description of this so i want to share that with all of you um simply put the difference between a habit and an addiction is that you have control over a habit but an addiction has control over you so a habit is a pattern of behavior that occurs over time because of frequent repetition like you do something over and over and over again and eventually your brain might even do it automatically like you get up at the same time every single day you have the same morning routine to the point that like you can do it in your sleep sort of thing or like you're biting your nails absentmindedly or something like that Um, habits can be positive or negative but they're usually not destructive and like obviously there are similarities between a habit and an addiction but there are also important differences Um, another thing I want to mention is a habit can become an addiction so my example for that would be like being a social smoker on like kind of a somewhat regular basis can lead to becoming a full-on everyday I need it smoker Um, and as I said usually a loss of control is the line that defines the difference between habit and addiction Um, addictions can't be controlled or stopped without significant effort uh, often professional assistance and another difference is frequency so an addiction is it's a dependency like you you might carry out a habit over and over and over again creating like a pattern of behavior but an addiction reaches a tolerance level and that means that the person has to do more and more of that addictive behavior to reach the same amount of satisfaction and a habit doesn't escalate Um, and lastly removing an addiction creates withdrawal symptoms and that doesn't happen to the same degree with a habit like it can be difficult to break a habit but it's like painful to break an addiction is that because of the chemicals you think um the withdrawal symptoms yeah Yeah. so but then you can you said that you can be addicted to things that are not drugs right and we will get into more of that yeah like withdrawal from gambling and withdrawal from heroin are different yeah (laughs) okay Okay, so that makes sense about the um, difference between a habit and an addiction. Good. My next question is, how much can we generalize from studies done on rats to actual things with humans? 
Um, so for this, I hope you're not mad that I sort of answer things too literally sometimes. So, um, how can we, how much can we generalize from rats to humans in general? Um, we're both mammals. Um, (laughs) so that's the similarity anyway, um, specific to addiction. Uh, and this, I took actually from the same Ted talk that you referenced in your episode last week, the everything you know about addiction is wrong. Great Ted talk, by the way, really, really eye opening. um, of course. Uh, so to quote the rat studies that you referenced in your study study last week, when a, riot, a rat is isolated in a cage and given two bottles of water, one laced with drugs, one not, they will choose the water bottle that's laced with drugs. And in this scenario, the rat will like continuously choose the drugged water, become addicted and kill themselves. But when they live in a rat park, as opposed to like an isolated environment, when they live in a society and a sim- stimulating environment, um, Rats nearly never use the drugged water. They don't use it compulsively, and they nearly always choose the regular water. And what's interesting to me is more so that um, when comparing it to, like, like in our society, when we can choose to compare ourselves um, to rats when referencing the rat cage type of experiment, but it feels like we don't recognize the similarity between human and rats when considering the rat park experiment. Mm. Um, connection is really the generalization that I would make as it, as it relates to addiction. Um, we're both very social creatures, and when isolated, either physically, socially, or emotionally, um, and we have the opportunity and access to drugs then we would form bonds with drugs. But when we're part of a community and a stimulating environment, we're able to form bonds with the community and the environment around us and are less likely to choose to form connections with drugs or at least like addictive connections with drugs. Hmm. Okay. I think that that's, I think I agree with the generalizability that humans and rats are both mammals who have social tendencies. I think in general generalization is maybe not the right way to approach things like this. Mm. Yeah. Switching gears a little bit. My next question is more about the chemicals of addiction. What happens in the brain chemically with drug use? So um, your brain is important, right? And (laughs) like, no (laughs) doubt. Um, (laughs) There are different areas of the brain that that get affected by drug abuse. Like your, uh, to name a few, your brainstem, which controls basic life function, like your heart rate, your breathing, your sleeping, that sort of stuff. The cerebral cortex, which controls specific function for our senses, um, but also powers our ability to think, plan, problem solve and make decisions and the limbic system which is the brain's reward circuit and pleasure center and it's also responsible for our perception of other emotions which explains the mood altering effects of drugs Um, all the parts of our brains are communicating with other parts of our brains and our body constantly and it's like a million emails a second kind of constantly Um, So our brain communicates neuron to neuron. Uh, Once a cell receives and processes a message, it sends it on to other neurons. Um, Neurotransmitters also uh, are involved in the communication within your brain. Um, Neurotransmitters are like chemical messengers like dopamine and serotonin, etc. Also, there are receptors in your brain and receptors are like the lock to a neurotransmitter's key. Um, Receptors like 
sit on every neuron and are designed to receive information from a particular neurotransmitter. So there's like a dopamine receptor or, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and we talked about that a little bit in our Chemicals of, of Love episode. Um, and then finally, transporters, which are basically like a recycling plant for neurotransmitters. When dopamine is sent out through neurotransmitter, um, transporters recycle that dopamine back to the neuron that released um, released it to shut off the signal between neurons. Um, anyway, so that's just a summary of the, the communication pathways in your brain. Yeah. Um, so as I learned from the National Institute on Drug Abuse, drugs affect all these communication systems within your brain and interfere with the way that neurons would normally send, receive, or process information. So some drugs like cannabis and heroin, I believe, actually mimic the chemical structure of natural neurotransmitters. So like the brain's own chemicals, but they don't activate neurons the same way that a natural neurotransmitter would. And that leads to abnormal messages being sent throughout your brain. But other drugs like amphetamines or cocaine cause neurons to release abnormally large amounts of natural neurotransmitters or prevent the normal recycling of brain chemicals. And that amplifies the message that these chemicals are sending throughout your brain, which disrupts your brain's communication. Can I just say, like, I didn't know that and my mind is blown. I didn't know that they, one of them, like, or two of them mimic real things and the uh some of them actually alter what your brain is producing yeah i knew i knew that amphetamines release large amounts of chemicals but i didn't know that cannabis or heroin like mimicked brain chemicals i had no idea um so that was kind of neat to know did you know um that there's like stimulant psychosis so if you take too much amphetamines you're, you can actually, like, start hallucinating yeah. and, like, go crazy and stuff like that. Yeah. Because, and that's not, like, the drug doing it to you then. That's the drug making your brain do it to you. Like, your brain is making you crazy. That I didn't really put together. That's fucked. That's cool, but yeah. fucked. Yeah, cool, but fucked. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, another thing I want to mention about how drugs just, like, chemically affect your brain. Um, most drugs affect the limbic system, which is our, like, reward system, our pleasure center of our brain, by flooding the circuit with dopamine. Which, if you remember from our Chemicals of Love episode, dopamine regulates movement, um, emotion, motivation, and feeling pleasure. So, normal levels of dopamine in the limbic system rewards our natural behaviors, but overstimulating the system with drugs produces euphoric effects, which strongly reinforces the behavior of drug use. And it teaches the person to repeat it, to keep using. This ties in really well with some anecdotal information that I'm about to pop in. Go for it. uh, About how our smartphones and like social media is... Oh, we gonna get there. Oh, I'm so excited. (laughs) Yes, perfect. Okay, never mind. I'm not going to go with that. No, you can go for it. It's just like it's structured it's to like release we, we dopamine. We're going to go there in like two seconds. So if you want to bring it up now, that's okay. <laughs> no, no. I'm I'm sure you've got better evidence about it. So, Okay. Well, then shall you ask, would you like to ask the next, next question? Yes, I would love to. Um, how can you be addicted to substances that don't alter your brain or can you? 
Uh, okay, so for this, this is like behavioral addictions as opposed to substance addictions. Um, this would sometimes be called impulse control disorder, like gambling. So it's a compulsion to engage in a rewarding non-drug behavior. And interestingly, behavioral addiction has been proposed as a new class in the DSM-5, but only the only category included is gambling addiction, which I didn't know. Um, Not sex addiction. No. At least the resources that I found did said that gambling is currently the only one listed there. On a complete side note, are you wearing highlighter? Highlighter? Yeah. No, like I'm just very sweaty. No? I have a shimmery blush. Okay, yes. looks very good. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just fucking sweating, and, and so See, I have. I just touched an, my neck, and I was like, "Ooh, my gullet." I, <laughs> I know that I have a sweat mustache right now, and it's not attractive. Um, anywho, DSM gambling. Yes. Um, so some other examples of, of behavioral addictions would be like food, sex, pornography, um, computers and video gaming, internet, uh, social media, exercise and shopping. Um, but I want to touch on, um, internet and social media addiction, uh, as you just brought up, because it is becoming a greater area of focus. A 2011 study found that the risk of internet addiction in men was three times higher than in women, and researchers noted that the characteristics of internet addiction are tolerance, withdrawal symptoms, um, affective disorders, problems in social relationships, um, creating psychological, social, um, school, or work difficulties in someone's life, which is like exactly the same sorts of uh, effects of a substance addiction. What's an affective disorder? I don't know. Google time. Google time. So Google is telling me that an affective disorder uh, or affective disorders are a set of psychiatric diseases also called mood disorders, which oh. we've covered before. We know all about that shit. Uh, main types of affective disorders are depression, bipolar disorder, and anxiety disorder. Symptoms may vary by an individual and can range from mild to severe. Not at all surprised to hear that in internet addiction can lead to that. Now, a 2014 study at the University of Albany surveyed 253 undergrad students regarding social media addiction. And this study found that not only is social media, particularly Facebook, um, potentially addictive, those who use it may be at a greater use of substance abuse. Although for me, I read that and I was like, well... That's a pretty general statement. Like, everyone's on Facebook. So what kind of? <laughs> also, like, these are college students. They're all fucking drinking all day anyway. Yeah. Um, anyway, so, yeah, fully you can be addicted to something that's not a substance uh, itself. And, again, a Sam uh, also stated that <laughs> we all have... <laughs> A Sam. A Sam, which is, again, it's something smart, American Society of Addiction Medicine. Um, they also stated that we all have a brain reward circuitry that makes food and sex rewarding. Um, that's actually a survival mechanism. And in a healthy brain, these rewards have feedback mechanisms for, like, what is enough. And in someone with an addiction, the circuitry becomes dysfunctional and the message to the individual becomes... I need more or not enough. Uh, and that leads to the pathological pursuit of reward or relief through the use of that substance or that behavior. 
Um, now, in terms of treatment for behavioral addictions, by the way, usually some form of psychotherapy, like cognitive behavioral therapy and medications are the most common forms of therapy used for those types of addictions because they focus on identifying patterns that trigger the addictive behavior and creating lifestyle changes that promote healthier behaviors. I think I think CBT is like the main therapy for most. I think. Talk that shit out. Things. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, my next question is, are people predisposed to addiction? Meaning, do genetics play a role in whether you'll be addicted to something or not? Yes. So I have a, kind of a twofold answer for this. Um, genetics sort of like like actual genomes and also genetics sort of like hereditary um, familial patterns. So um, genetics do play a role. For this, I tried to be as scholarly as possible, and I found some really great references through the National Center for Biotechnology Information and the U.S. National Library of Medicine. I think in general, we both tried to be scholarly, um, but it doesn't there work. There were a me. few questions that you were asking me where I like had firsthand knowledge, so I wasn't necessarily going for the most uh, scholarly answer, okay. um, which is why I say that. Uh, anyway, we'll get there. Um, <laughs> genetics and environmental variables contribute to someone starting to use addictive substances and also to the transition of that use becoming a full addiction. Uh, many studies across families, adoption, and even twins have shown that an individual's risk tends to be proportional to the degree of genetic relationship to an addictive rel uh, an addicted relative. So like if you have somebody who is addicted to substances in your family, you are more likely to be addicted to substances yourself. But does that mean that there's a gene about it or hold, it's like a learned? Hold the phone. Because okay. I literally am holding my phone. You are little. <laughs> Good. Um, keep holding. So um, yes and yes. So the Virginia twin study, which I think was conducted in 2005, um, it was a large national study in the U S conducted on adult twins, looking at the heritability of 10 addictive disorders. So that's like hallucinogens, stimulants, cannabis, sedatives, opiates, cocaine, alcohol, smoking, caffeine, um, and pathological gambling. So a pretty good range of substances, including legal, illegal, and at least one that is not an actual substance. Um, the study revealed that in early adolescence, the initiation and use of nicotine, alcohol, and cannabis are more strongly determined by familial and social factors, but these gradually decline in importance during your progression to young and middle adulthood when the effects of genetic um, factors hit their sort of maximum and could actually start declining with age. And by the way, I liked that they sourced um, this, like, I think this was from the U.S. Uh, Library of Medicine. I like that they sourced this study because this heritability study was carried out in populations and um, age groups that tend to share likelihood of exposure and accessibility to substances mm. and that also tend to be similar in experience um, of other other environmental factors that influence risk. So it's controlling for a lot of variables. Yeah, exactly. I like um, that. Yeah, I knew you would. <laughs> um, now, those sorts of studies for me, they still lead me closer to feeling like this is learned and this is like an environmental um, thing, uh, likelihood um, that like contributes to your likelihood of becoming an addict rather than like 
you're born that way. Um, but there is a lot of evidence in, or pardon me, there are a lot of studies in vertebrate and invertebrate animal models to try and identify genes that are central to drug response and neuroadaptation. So addiction-related behaviors have been altered in mice, revealing the molecular complexity and multiplicity of pathways that might lead to addiction. And mice have also been used to sort of narrow in on specific genes that are implicated in drug addiction. Um, also, enhanced ethanol sensitivity in the common fruit fly is due to a genetic mutation that results in diminished activation of specific pathways in the brain. Um, and studies on the Reese macaw have shown that early life stress, namely maternal deprivation, leads to behavioral discontrol, hyper-responsiveness to stress, and increased alcohol consumption later in life. And I'm like, really? Were those macaws? On the macaw? Again, drinking? <laughs> Really? Um, but it's from, uh, like I say, it's from like some legit stories or pardon studies. me, some legit studies, some legit sources. So huh. maybe. <laughs> That's cool. I didn't. Yeah. Um, OK, so then I guess that kind of leads into my next question. And it's the eternal question of nature versus nurture, meaning is addiction caused by chemical things or by environmental things um, like Rat Park? Yeah. So my my assessment on what I've researched is both, like both play a factor. Um, and to quote the, again, the TED talk that you referenced last week, uh, Johan Hari, I think was his name. I think that's how you say it. Uh, challenges the idea that addiction is a chemical dependency. And he said this really perfect thing that I thought summed up the reason for addiction like so exactly. He said a core part of addiction um, is about not being able to be present in your life. And as like, as we've already talked about, people become addicted to many things that have no chemical implications, like gambling, eating, stealing, sex. Um, so as far as nature versus nurture, yeah, when it comes to drug addiction, our bodies do develop a chemical dependency in the substance and having... Um, family members who are addicted to things make you more likely to be addicted as well. But you can, first of all, you can stop using drugs for the required amount of time for that chemical to be processed through your body for the withdrawal symptoms to subside and all of that. But that doesn't mean that you're not addicted to that substance anymore. Hmm. So removing the chemical doesn't really remove the addiction. And I think I've mentioned in previous episodes that um, I've known several people who've struggled with addictions to various substances, everything from like cigarettes to alcohol to opiates. And I've known some people, some of those people better when they were in the thick of their addiction. And I've known some of them better when they were working through their recovery. And in my own personal observations, while there are certainly physical and chemical aspects to it, the reason that someone becomes addicted seems to be environmental to me. And when I say envir environmental, I mean both your like your physical environment so your your health your housing your living situation your social environment your friends family your employment um and also your psychological and in, and emotional environment you, so mental illnesses emotional abuse self-esteem confidence that sort of stuff um yeah so for me for me i lean toward the environmental the the nurture side of it um like but it's both yeah but yeah. but i think it's both yeah like um 
I don't know, like alcoholics have a physical craving for alcohol or like a heroin addict has a physical craving for their drug. Um, but what drives you to keep using those substances or for the, that matter, like what drives you to continue to use those substances at a frequency that leads to becoming like a physical chemical dependency, I think it's environmental. Um I think also in past episodes, we've used the phrase, it takes a village a couple of times in the past. And I think that it applies again here. Like you can call it a village or a community, a support system, you know, whatever you like. When it comes to both developing and overcoming addiction, I think it takes a village, um, especially in recovery. Like it community, family, friends, doctors, professionals, like you, it takes a support system to help an addict move forward and further away from their dependency. And without that support system, an addict is more likely to relapse and move back toward that dependency. Mm -hmm. And I think that rat park experiment that, and that whole Ted talk just like really solidified those opinions for me. Yeah. Um, and I had the same, I had similar opinions. The, like in my study study, I kind of tore into Rat Park a little yeah. bit because he's missing a lot of shit. Yeah. And like, I just wanted to like, although I agree and it like that study appeals to a lot of things that like I hold as values that like it, it does take a village and it's all about like the people you have around you and that sort of thing. That's why I believed it so freely. And so like adamantly, I think there is a big thing about the chemical. Yeah addiction side of it right yeah. like i was um i spent a lot, quite a lot of time on reddit like trolling what the actual people are doing like trolling the forums and stuff uh and a lot of them were saying like okay well i'm ready to stop this drug or like i'm ready to stop Behavior, this addiction whatever. Yeah. yeah but i'm so afraid of the come down like i'm so afraid of like withdrawal i'm so afraid of all of that so like they know that it's damaging their lives and they're ready to quit and they're ready and they have the support system and everything but the chemical part of it like i'm afraid that it will wreck my body and it's like torture is a big part of why people continue to use or like they'll go from one drug to like something that they think is slightly less harsh but it's still a drug mm -hmm. but that will like assist in their come down so i think it's important to note that both exist still yeah oh yeah yeah I don't think that like there's no argument from me yeah. on that like it is it's nature and it's nurture yeah for sure um so on that note what's the best way to stop an addiction um so I think and I'm glad you brought up reddit because I think that's a good um lead into this so I think first you have to recognize it first off that like you have an addiction or like a, yeah. Um, and get to a point where you want to change it. Uh, but there's no one size fits all approach um, for it to be most effective. Whatever treatment you choose, you've got to choose the uh, appropriate option based on the severity and type of addiction, who you are and your motivation to change um, and the supports that are available to you or to the addicted person. So family, friends, community, resources, that sort of thing. So I uh, did a lot of researching through CAMH for this information. Um, so uh, just to list a few approaches to treating and, and changing addictions. 
Uh, the first one is self-change. Some people with substance use problems are able to make changes on their own using like self-help materials, like um, self-help books or websites or some shit. Personally, I feel like that can be really effective for some individuals, especially if it's someone who's struggling with a less severe addiction. Like quitting smoking is not the same as quitting heroin. And, and also you have to be like quite introspective about that kind of stuff yeah. too, versus I know many people who aren't introspective whatsoever. So they need somebody... External. Yeah. And you have to have like a very strong inner motivation and will to make that change, to carry it through, to do it on your own. Um, so I think I think motivation for self-change is an aspect to conquering any addiction. But I don't think that making changes on your own is a realistic option for people struggling with really severe addictions. Um, or again, like you say, depending on the type of person it is, you might like know you want to change yourself, but not have the... Uh, the tools that you need to do it totally on your own. Like the self-awareness as well. Exactly, yeah. So some other options would be uh, self-help groups, uh, like mutual aid groups is what they're sometimes called. Um, these support people who are working to change their substance use. And many people participate in these sorts of groups at the same time that they are in some other formal treatment. Is this like AA, NA? Yeah, yeah. Can I interrupt with just a quick little thing, disturbing ass thing that I saw on Reddit? Yeah. So there was one, um, it was like, oh, I just moved to a town. How do I find somebody new to pick up drugs from? And one of the suggestions was go to an NA meeting. Yeah. Because all of those people are there for recovering yeah. from their addiction so they know where to pick up drugs. And I was like, no, don't fucking solicit people who are trying to get away from it. Like, ugh. But like it's yeah, it makes sense and it's very logical. But like also, you're just fucking up people who are trying to cure themselves. Yeah. Anyway, well, I just want to pop we will that in get there. into the conversation of AA and whether or not that's actually effective. But, <laughs> um, but, but yeah, that's. I'm not surprised by that. Um, the oldest and largest self help organization is Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, and we'll we'll talk about that in a few minutes. But there are many other self help groups and approaches to like self help groups other than AA, with various philosophies and approaches for people with substance use problems. So maybe not AA, maybe not NA, like those specific groups, but there are are other programs in that same sort of like it takes a village vein mm -hmm. um, to help you. Um, another treatment option is harm reduction. And harm reduction yes. techniques are sort of designed to assist people who might not be ready or willing. I'm so willing. excited that yeah. you brought this up. Um, um, yeah, so they're, they're directed to assist people who might not be ready or, or able to give up a substance. Um, so like you say, people who are really afraid of the chemical aspect to quitting even if I like feel ready to do it I'm afraid of withdrawal harm reduction could be an appropriate option for them like clean needle centers yeah a safe injection site or a methadone clinic or something like that so basically harm reduction ranges from helping people to learn safer ways to use substances to helping people learn how to recognize the signs of an overdose to providing clean needles and other injection equipment for injection drug use and those sorts of programs are aimed to really reduce the transmission of infections like HIV, AIDS, um, or hep C through needle sharing. Um, also helping ensure that people's basic needs like food, shelter, medical care are met. So addressing homelessness and poverty reduces addiction. Um, there is an argument that my dad makes and he says, uh, if somebody's like an addict or whatever, if they keep having a safe place to go home to and safe people to keep manipulating 
then they will not stop being addicts. Like you have to hit rock bottom. I very much disagree, but we will we will talk more about that. Yeah, and yeah. I mean, like my dad is by no means an expert, <laughs> but like that's one of the beliefs that he holds, and I have a hard time like reconciling reconciling that. But so anyway. do I, and that and TED it goes talk against the really, it takes a village. Really, um, pinpointed it. I forget what he said, but it was uh, I can't remember the exact words, but he says something like you you turn off their support system you threaten their support system when you say i will not like like an intervention for example like i'm gone from your life if you keep up this behavior but you're isolating that person even further and if you leave that person isolated you think they're going to get better you think that's going to make them stop using drugs like that's just going to remove them from your life that doesn't actually help the addicted individual but whatever that's a We'll probably, we'll get there. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But anyway, uh, the last thing I want to mention on harm reduction is substituting a safer drug for a person who's using. So substituting methadone for heroin. So someone who's really, really uh, afraid of the withdrawal symptoms could look at that as an option. And I actually know somebody who went through that and by no means was it pretty. um, But as far as I know, it was effective for her. I I mean, like among she was also in self-help groups. She you know, she was in she was in a lot of other treatment options as well. But she was really struggling with that. Like, I'm afraid of the physical aspect of it. And it was a long journey. But that contributed her to her success. Yeah. Yeah. And I think part of that, like to nestle it in there is also like the benefits of psychotherapy so like cognitive behavioral therapy counseling is the next thing that i want okay to talk perfect about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so i was gonna just say like because a lot of people relapse when they're like experiencing something bad yeah and they don't know how to deal with it and so they turn to the thing that they've learned to go to yeah whenever they're feeling badly like and again why would isolating somebody from other like <laughs> eh, sorry <laughs> uh and so these people like addicts To, like, get over addiction, I think, that you need to learn better ways to deal with your damage than to just do a line. Yeah. Um, And we've talked about counseling and therapy and all of that in multiple past episodes. But generally, like, it aims to increase a person's awareness of how substance use affects their life, what puts them at risk of substance use, and how to reduce substance use. It helps people examine their thoughts and emotions and learn how these inner experiences affect how they behave and how they interact with others and how other people see them. And it also promotes um, physical, emotional, and spiritual wellness. Like it helps someone learn to manage cravings and temptations to use substances. It helps to meet their needs through assertive communication. Um, It helps them to develop a healthier lifestyle, find ways to meet people and form new relationships that aren't focused on substance use and also to reduce stress or help them through uh, a time in their life where they might turn to drugs, like you say. Um, Another uh, way to stop addiction would be alcohol and other drug education. And I think this is really important way to help people make informed choices. And I think it's a really important preventative measure. Um, But I also think that uh, education and support for family members of addicts working through treatment is a critical aspect to this as well. Mm -hmm. Um, There are medications to help treat addictions as well, like the nicotine patch or gum or an inhaler, um, taking there, there are different medications that you can take as well for smoking cessation. I don't think that that medication, though, affects like 
the, uh, the I don't think it targets anything specifically to do with like addiction in general. It just no, targets it's like more. It's I one think of those towards harm the reduction. harm reduction. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Um, yeah. Now another thing to mention is withdrawal management so people sometimes need short-term help dealing with substance use withdrawal um, and withdrawal management would help someone manage those symptoms and um, that happen when they stop using the substance so it helps like prepare clients for long-term treatment so it's again it's an aspect to other treatment options as well and then kind of like a more holistic approach to treatment would be things like stress or anger management, grief, uh, trauma counseling, um, finding a job, going back to school, uh, healthy eating, accessing safe and affordable housing, getting social assistance or disability benefits, um, financial education, like learning how to manage your money and budget your money, um, developing parenting skills, like things that address the root causes that might lead somebody to use a substance rather than treating the symptoms mm-hmm. of substance withdrawal or something like that. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's what I've got for treatment options. Okay. How to stop being an addict. Also just like work and time and perseverance and belief in yourself and shit like that. <laughs> So my next question has to do a little bit with something I said, like a poll quote from my from the study study episode. And it is about generalizability. So I said um, something like it's like saying right. It's like saying rats like their steaks with salt and pepper. So humans should have some salt and pepper on everything on your bread, on your banana and in your coffee. And probably the most important part of this is, Megan, should we have salt and pepper on our bananas um so i was when i read marta sent me this list of questions guys if you haven't already realized she sent me a list of questions and i did the research no 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 no. we're just this in touch (laughs) (laughs) we're just this in touch no she she sent me a list of things to to talk about to research and be prepared to talk about so as i was reading through this no word of a lie i was eating a banana and went like when i read that question i was halfway through that banana so what did i do i broke off a chunk of my remaining banana <laughs> I seasoned so it with salt and pepper and I gave it a go and in my opinion bananas are better without salt and pepper <laughs> but what? curveball chocolate really pairs well with bananas and with salt so I feel like a dark Whoa. chocolate coated banana with a touch of sea salt on top would be pretty fucking delicious and also maybe maybe not pepper but like some cayenne like something piquant Ooh, yeah like a little mm-hmm. bit I don't think I would do chocolate banana salt and cayenne i would probably do like a salted chocolate banana and like a peppery chocolate banana i wouldn't do the salt and pepper so you together. mean you're not insane basically no <laughs> not totally yeah uh okay. um so yeah i've tried it guys don't don't waste <laughs> your time it's not worth it ruins a perfectly good banana good to know <laughs> <laughs> this is another problem with generalizing <laughs> um next another food analogy is uh i just remember the lays commercial that's like have a lays but you can't have just one is it possible to have just one heroin please or is it like can you not stop okay so practically speaking yeah it's totally possible to use heroin just once and um I have a really specific example of this. So morphine is like medically pure heroin, right? Better than street heroin, best of the best. And someone recovering from 
getting their hip replaced or a knee replaced or like surgery or having suffered a terrible accident or something like that, they're going to be given morphine or some other crazy strong prescription drug for pain management to get them through it. And although there's a portion of the population that does develop an addiction to prescription drugs, there's a huge population that doesn't. That goes back to their everyday lives not needing morphine to fucking get out of bed. So, um, yeah, like just to shoot it down right there you can (laughs) you can you can take the prescribed amount for the prescribed time and move on with your life not needing coding codeine every two hours so you can have just one heroin you you can have just one heroin um that's my personal observation but i did also of course do some research and all the sources i found seem to say the same thing as my original observation it's unlikely that you'll get a full-blown addiction to heroin the first time you use it but that first experience can be the start of a compulsive cycle. So like, and if it's so if good, it goes well yeah. and you love that shit and you're like, Hey, next Friday, let's, let's do, do that again. And let's maybe do it again on Saturday. And now let's do it on Tuesday and Wednesday and every other day. Like it, it can certainly, that brings up, um, my, I had a really bad migraine one since my sister gave me one of her Tylenol threes, mm-hmm. which have codeine in them. Turns out I have a codeine sensitivity and I spewed everywhere. Yikes. And so like, not only can I not have codeine, I also cannot have just one heroin because I'll spew. You will be very sick. Yeah. Wow. So. um, So yeah, you, you can take just one heroin. It doesn't mean you're going to be addicted to the substance like that. Um, But it, if it, if, if it can be an experience that quickly does become an addictive pattern. Mm hmm. Um, and something anecdotal I've heard about heroin is like that the first time you do it, it's the best time. And it's like a godlike experience. And every time after that, people are just chasing that first time feeling. I I don't know that from personal experience, but I would believe that. And again, it comes back to tolerance level. The more frequently you use, the higher your tolerance, the more you need to take. And yet you're constantly chasing the idea of the high that you want. You don't get there. So you take more and more and more and you're more and more reliant on that substance well i know for me like with pot or alcohol like the first couple times i was ever like higher drunk is completely different from any times i've been higher drunk afterwards because like when the first couple times that i was drunk i'd be like oh my lips are going numb or like my lips are tingling and now i don't notice that when i'm drinking oh so not so much for weed for me but alcohol goes right to my head right away i very quickly feel the effects of alcohol so Hmm. it's great i don't ever have to spend much money in a bar because i get drunk pretty quick it's not that (laughs) it's not that i don't get drunk like i definitely do it's just that it feels different and like the first time i was high i was like so curious about the feeling and it was also unfamiliar and like different and strange and like it opened up a whole new world because of like i didn't know you could feel this way and whatever so I just think of like the times I get high now. I'm trying to think of the first time that I smoked pot. I remember it very well. Um, I remember constantly waiting to feel it and not really feeling it and Hmm. looking in the mirror and being like, my eyes are bloodshot. Like I look (laughs) fucked, but (laughs) I don't really feel that fucked. Um, I was the exact opposite way. I was around, I was with a bunch of people who like had been seasoned pot smokers and I was like, is it supposed to feel like this? What about this? Is it supposed to feel like this? I feel like I'm on an elevator always going up. (laughs) They're like, yep, you're high. And like, I don't feel the same way now. I, I definitely feel it more now than I ever did when I first started hmm. using it but I was with I was with people who had I was the only newbie yeah and same. uh yeah they were 
these girls very very silly they were goofing around they thought it was just giggling always and I kept looking around being like when is this going to start like ha 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 yeah but like when's this gonna start one more marijuana please Mo- one more marijuana please the second time that I smoked pot though was great I went in a massage chair that was an experience oh my God. and then I went to Tim Hortons of course and <laughs> I got two donuts and it was a really good day hi can I have a uh, maple walnut danish one pot and two donuts please and a sprinkle donut it w- they were both sour cream glaze because I got one and it was so oh, good that I needed yes. another <laughs> Yeah. Uh, next up, on a different thread. Yeah, totally kind of changing gear. Back to our uh, treatment thread. Does the twelve-step program work? I have so. I was so glad to see this question. I'm so glad you asked this question because you're welcome. This is one of my favorite episodes of bullshit. Oh so yeah. If you, have you mentioned it on this podcast before? No, I've, I'm, I'm sure, sure you have. I've mentioned bullshit on this podcast. It's one of my favorite shows, and season two, one of the later episodes in season two, is AA, like the twelve stepping, and it's one of my favorite episodes. So, um, as I mentioned earlier, there are a lot of different treatment options available, and finding the right one depends both on the person seeking treatment and the addiction that they have, like the type of substance, the severity level, that sort of stuff. In terms of 12-stepping, there are a lot of people that swear by it. Um, but as I learned from bullshit, actually finding solid numbers on how many people have been successful with AA is very difficult um, to actually get legit numbers that say, this is our effectivity rate kind of thing. Um, also, I thought I would ask you, do you know what the 12 steps are? Isn't the first one, like, admit you have a problem? Yeah. Uh, do you want me to read them out for you? Sure. Because they'll. I bet they'll surprise you. They really surprised me. I know that one of them is something about, like, don't keep saying sorry, like, actions speak louder than words. Oh, there's, like, make make amends or something. Yeah. Like, apologize to everyone. Yep. Um, and then, like, uh, well, I'll let you read it out instead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you're, you're right. Um, so the first one is admit that you are powerless over in alcohol, or pardon me, in Alcoholics Anonymous, it's admit you're powerless over alcohol or NA, admit you're powerless over narcotics or whatever it is that you're addicted to. Admit you're powerless and that your life has become unmanageable. That's step one. Step two. Come well, t- uh, sorry, I have a like I have a qualm already with that because people who come to AA who are like, Unwilling. Court ordered? Well, yeah, court, or- <laughs> court ordered or like even unwilling to admit that there are things outside of their yeah. control. So like people who are controlling yeah. will never be able to get over. So right away we've found flaws with step one, the step that all the remaining steps are based on. <laughs> yep. Um, step two, come to believe that a power greater than yourself can restore your sanity. Sorry, wait. So you have to believe in God? You have to believe in a power greater than yourself that is capable of restoring your sanity. Well, I was going to say, there are many powers that are greater than myself. Like for the fact that yesterday I couldn't open a fucking water bottle. So there are people who are power- more powerful than yes. me. Yes, friction is a power over us, as is gravity. Can, anyway. Okay. <laughs> I'll let you proceed. I keep interrupting. No, no, it's okay. But yeah, you have to admit that there's a, or pardon me, come to the belief that a power greater than yourself can restore your sanity. Um, step three, decide to turn your will and your life over to the care of God or a higher power as you choose it. No, fuck this. What's step happening? Three. I did not know that it was so religious. Alcoholics Anonymous is a religious organization. Alcoholics Anonymous. And then there's like a subscript that's like, and we all believe in God. So it's not like, uh, what about an Alcoholics Anonymous for atheists? Uh, they say they welcome atheists. 
they still but they're just trying to convert you you still have to uh submit to a higher power and this is why I love this episode of bullshit. Somebody was like, there was a guy, there was an atheist who for him, his power, what his higher power was a rock. And I'm like, so an inanimate object, you've decided to hand your life and your sanity and your everything over to an inanimate object. That's your higher power. I feel like that's kind of just it, like talking about, oh, it's it a sounds like an excuse it's to get cheating. that guy through the steps to yeah. f- complete his court order. That's it's, what it sounded like to me. It sounds like cheating. Like you're not actually teaching these people how to like exert power over themselves. Like you are in control of yourself. Or identify the patterns of their behavior that like take responsibility these. for your shit. So that's step three. <laughs> um, step four. Make a searching and fearless moral inventory of yourself. I don't have that many qualms with step four. I think that introspection is good. Yes. Um, Step five, though, admit to God, yourself, and to another human being that the uh, the exact nature of your wrongdoing. So you have to, like, tell your higher power yourself and, like, your your, um, sponsor, let's say. Philosophical question. Is addiction a wrongdoing? Like, if you're just like a a philosophical question, if you're just a lonely person, not really hurting anyone except for yourself, is it a wrongdoing? That's only a wrongdoing if you believe in like religion and God and that like everybody's it's everybody's duty to be their own best selves. It also goes back to punishing addicts instead of like nourishing them, legitimately trying to nurture them. Yes. Okay. So this is going to take us forever if I keep interrupting. Step six, decide you're entirely ready to have God remove all the defects of your character. Mm -hmm. Continue. Just hand it on over to God. Please go on. Um, (laughs) Seven, ask God to remove those shortcomings. For fuck's sake. (laughs) So step six, decide you're ready to. Step seven, follow through and ask God to remove, just take an eraser there, God. And remove that thing. Literally. I believe in you and that you gave this to me. So here you go. Here is it back. Erase it. The heat in this car. <laughs> and this religious shit <laughs> that you're spewing at me. Like, yeah. I come, I come from a really Catholic household, right? Like Polish people and Catholicism goes hand in hand, whatever. But making recovery from addiction conditional on your faith in god is or even any other higher power i think it doesn't have to be god the rock buddha whatever wait wait, wait, i actually do believe in the rock like i believe more in handing it over to the rock than i do fucking god dwayne the rock dwayne johnson probably could help you out honestly he could be a part of your support network if dwayne the rock johnson was in my life i don't think I think I would be the best version of myself all the time. (laughs) You're so fucking amazing. Please stay in my life. You heard it here, folks. (laughs) Okay, so that was, what step was that? That was step seven. Um, Step eight, make a list of all of the people you harmed and become willing to make amends with all of them. I'm so sorry, The Rock. Um, Step nine, make amends with those people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them, yourself, or another person. Okay. Step 10, continue to take personal inventory when uh, and when you're wrong, admit to it. So it sounds to me like the 12-step step program could really just be like five steps if we take out all the religious uh, Seven out of 12 steps uses the word God. Or higher power. Also, I would like to point out that like a couple of the steps are overlapped, but they don't necessarily need to be 12 of them. Like I think we could get it down to 10. 
I think maybe it's a good thing that there's so many steps just to like like go to against. isolate. Yeah, and to like and to bring credence to the fact that like addiction is a long road. Yeah, and so like let's give them twelve steps so that they feel like they're doing something, so that they see progression. Yeah, 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 yeah. I like a to do list. Yeah. Fuck yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, so yeah, continue your personal inventory. Admit when you're wrong. That's step ten. Um, Eleven. Seek to improve your conscious contact with God or your higher power through prayer and meditation, praying only for knowledge of his will and for the power to carry out his will. That's my only reaction. <laughs> so just like literally Jesus take the wheel. That's that step. <laughs> okay. Left. I actually love that saying, but <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then finally, step 12, having a spiritual awakening as a result of all these steps Try to carry out this message to other alcoholics and practice these principles in all of our affairs. So step 12. Be a missionary. Be a missionary. Yep. So, um, I, yeah, I said a God a bunch of times because technically that is what the 12 steps refer to. But I will fully admit that AA and NA, they claim to welcome non-religious people as well, even though there's a spiritual approach to treatment. Like the spiritual approach is woven into nearly every fucking step of the 12 step program. If you don't believe in God, you can still you, you do still have to be ready to hand things over to a higher power. Recognize that something outside of of. There, recognize that there's a force outside of you that's beyond your control and in my opinion admit that it controls you I'm fired up about this I know you should really watch bullshit um, so yeah so so tell me then Marta how, how do you feel how would you feel going through these 12 steps <laughs> do you think it would help you there are people who swear by it Gary Busey is someone who swears by it I think it's a way to kind of like absolve yourself of your culpability, like to just say, oh, this is somebody else's fault. Like alcohol is so powerful. And it goes back to the idea like, oh, this drug is one of those devil drugs that I can't like it's doing it to me. Like, no, take responsibility. I don't know. I think if I were an addict and I felt powerless, this would maybe help because I'd be like, oh, it's God who's going to help me. But I still would argue that you would remain powerless because you're still not in control. That's God true. is. But I think it's working on something else. It's like kind of pulling one over on people, like telling them, oh, it's God that's helping you. But it's actually you helping you. If you believe that God can help you, then you should believe you should be able to believe that you can help you. Maybe. And I would be okay if there was a surprise step 13 that was pull the blindfold off and Replace show the, the person God. that you did all of this and you really do have the willpower and what's needed to like stay clean. Yeah. If that was the secret step 13, I'm in. <laughs> yeah, like, I'm in and I understand this spiritual approach and get that to, to a point where someone can believe in themselves. But. I think that that's the only way that AA would work, like that these steps work is that it actually gives the power to the person without them realizing it sidebar that's not a fart there's a motorcycle <laughs> driving by <laughs> yeah but i wouldn't like it i would not no, like it i, I wouldn't even like you reading it and we're in a hot car no yeah Ugh. it made you angry you you were visibly upset um so i as you can probably tell have reservations about all of these steps um but particular the steps that refer to a higher power because i think right away that isolates people who don't identify with that ideology even people like even that they say that they welcome non-religious people 
it's built in that you have to admit to a higher power. And if you are somebody who is who doesn't believe in that sort of ideology, you're what you're, you're just shit out of luck. One. Like, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. So there are, um, programs, not like the AA 12 step program structure. Um, one is called SOS and I'm going to forget right now what it stands for. It's like, um, it's like a non secular, uh, group therapy type approach. So, um, so like there are other options to you outside of AA, but because your specific question was, does the 12 step program work? I would say it probably works as much as doing nothing mm-hmm. or, um, in some cases, I think it would be less effective than other similar group, um, therapy yeah. approaches. Yeah. Something that is glaring to me in the 12 step program is that there's no like CBT. There's no cognitive behavioral nope. therapy. There's no, like when you get the urge to do this, do this other thing instead. Uh, I think it's like call your sponsor. Oh yeah. But, and I mean, I, I think that's a good thing. Having a person there who can like be there for you when you need something else to call on. True. That's not one of the 12 steps, though. I think it's, again, kind of built into the program, but it's not one of the 12 steps. Hmm. I also think it's just, I don't know. I think it isolates. I just, I don't believe in Yeah. And all for people who believe in God, even if you are religious, I still don't think the 12-step program would work for you. And if you, well, it it, it might, might. It might not. I mean, again, it's about what works for you, right? So, um if it works for you, great. If it doesn't work for you, don't think that you don't have any other options. Like at the end of the day, I want anyone who's addicted to something and wants to not be to find a way through to yeah. recovery. So if this helps you, good, but don't Push force it. it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So since we have uh, robustly opposed the 12 step program, what is our, what are our next steps? Like for example, Vancouver is in the midst of a huge opioid crisis. And we know that this is kind of trickling through the rest of Canada. And also the U S is in the midst of a huge opioid crisis. What are the next steps? What now? Um, so a few things to say to that. So, um, again, the Ted talk that you referenced, um, he, talked about what they had done in Portugal and I think that I was very convinced by the Portugal's approach to this Uh, basically like their government and their society changed their approach to addiction Um, and I think uh, it started with decriminalizing drugs um, and 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 spending the money that's currently directed to um, prosecuting and persecuting addicts and you know all of that uh, punishing addicts prosecuting drug sales spend that money uh, redirect it towards rehabilitation programs that do more than just get you through your physical dependency it's radically different from what we do now and it means things like putting money towards creating housing like real housing not just building a building and charging an addict $1,500 a month to live in a shithole and calling it affordable housing, looking at you, Toronto. Um, As Marta knows, uh, I have some experience in the nonprofit world and a good amount of experience working with all kinds of charities. Um, Charities and nonprofits serve communities in our world that aren't otherwise served, right? And one example of a sector of nonprofits that provide service to addicts and another very obvious sector is... um, incidentally has one of the highest overlap with addiction is um, nonprofits that serve the homeless. 
there is a, a really interesting organization based in Toronto called the Good Neighbors Club. And they work specifically with older homeless men who have truly little to no other services uh, that they can turn to uh, because they don't qualify for them. Like they aren't a minority. uh, They're over in a certain age uh, and therefore they don't fit the criteria needed to be able to take advantage of a lot of other great programs available in the city. Um, Anyway, a few years ago, I uh, had a long conversation with one of their program directors. And keep in mind, like this is an organization like many nonprofits, they've got like two and a half staff staff members and they're trying to serve the entire homeless male population in the city of Toronto. Um, So as far as who knows what's up uh, and what's needed to address the way we approach homelessness and addiction in our society, like this is somebody who is really truly on the front lines. Um, He talked to me about how we approach homelessness in North America versus the approach that's taken in some European countries. And one of the most interesting things we talked about was a program, and I wish I could remember the country, I think it was a Scandinavian country, like Denmark or the um, Netherlands, with- maybe the Netherlands. I don't know some fucking utopian shit like that in <laughs> Scandinavia where they they do good. Uh, anyway, uh, where they actually provide truly affordable housing to the homeless. Like you, you do pay rent, but it's like a nominal fee. Uh, it's like fifty bucks a month or something like legit, truly affordable. So there is responsibility. There is um, there is a an amount that you have to pay to live essentially in like a residence, like university residence or something like that. And this does some really significant things for the people who are able to take advantage of that program. It gives them a permanent address and that means they can get a bank account, which means that they can get ID and a job and, you know, like just give them a fucking address. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, if you're someone who is addicted to a substance, you have a safe space to be. You aren't left on the street hiding in some back alley where no one can find you when you OD or get robbed or get attacked. You have a space that you can go and and be safe to deal with that and, again, take advantage of things like harm reduction and, like, work towards goals to stop um it gives you independence and security which is a huge step forward like it it, all of a sudden like i'm not homeless Mm -hmm. i'm not i'm not dependent on begging on the street i'm not pardon me i'm not like all of these things and that gives me confidence that gives me a will to live which gives me a will to stop using this substance that's ruining my life um it's not a free ride situation like there's rules in the residence um they're secure they're monitored um it's kind it's just like a kind of support that we 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 don't have it in north america and it's not at all the way of thinking about addiction or homelessness in north america and like i don't know how many of our listeners have experience with this kind of thing but if you've ever like walked around a city in north america not even a big city either um it's not hard to see that our culture's current approach to treating addiction and sidebar homelessness is not effective. Um, safe injection sites work, um, but they serve a community that our culture deems undesirable. No one wants an injection site near their house. It puts put it in someone else's neighborhood. Don't put it in mine. Uh, nobody wants to live near a homeless shelter. No one wants to run their beers, uh, their business next to a methadone clinic, right? Um, But if you look at a country like Portugal, they've made this radical shift in their approach to addiction treatment and more specifically their treatment of individuals struggling with addiction. And after, I think, 15 years, it's 
effective and no one wants to go back to the old way of doing things. So that's what I think for next steps could be. It's not a fast change. It's like hugely different, but, um, and it's, and it's very long term, but I think it's a better path than the one we're on now. Yeah. And I agree. I think it has to do like this for me ties in really closely with our mental health crisis as well. So like it's a shift from thinking of drug abuse from from thinking of it as a criminal issue from thinking of it as like you're breaking the law you're a criminal to more like you aren't able to cope with some mental health shit that's happening in your life or like you're just not able to cope with your life for one reason or another and maybe you need some help and I shouldn't punish you for that and I think starting that conversation and like taking away the stigma is better like yeah not everybody can like radically self-disclose in the way that I can right so uh I I think that that's the monumental shift that needs to happen and so not even just focused around addiction specifically but just like opening up the conversation about mental health and like hey I'm struggling with this thing can I talk to you about it instead of shooting up yeah right so I agree I agree with you that the like um providing a safe space and that sort of thing to people who are suffering is a good idea I'd like to also try to stop it before that yeah right well and that goes back to talking about like education programs and that sort of thing that's a critical um step in prevention but I also think it's a critical step in changing our approach like if people continue to be educated in the way that we are now to like not educated in the like there's somebody up at the front of the board that says, you know, we don't like addicts or something like that. But like just sort of society, how we're trained, how we're how yeah. we're um, taught in underlying ways to look at addiction and people who are suffering an addiction, um, that education and the change in the way that we educate people could really yeah. do a lot for that. I think in I think that maybe the hardest conversation or like the hardest part of this is like why are we giving handouts to people who fucked up their own lives and stuff like that. Like I know that with my parents, for example, they are like hardworking immigrants who like busted their ass for everything they have. How come their tax money is going to people who are in one of those like welfare families, like families who have never worked a day in their lives. The kids don't work because they're on welfare and they also use drugs and whatever. And so Do like, they save the same things about seniors. Um who get social assistance because they're over a certain age and don't have to work anymore. But they worked. Yeah. Before. Well, my, I don't know. It's just like, it's convincing people that like, you're not giving your money to like, it's also holding the addict, the people who are using responsible, right? Like don't, it's not just like a free handout for everybody always. Right. Like you have, it's, it's not like a liberal frou-frou, like everybody gets free money and like free yeah, housing and whatever. I don't think that's effective. Like just yeah. giving them everything they want and letting so them like, keep using isn't effective. But like it's I a say, fine line. It's a, it is a fine line, but there are rules and regulations and structure to these sorts of programs where it's not like, okay, great. You have a free house where you're allowed to keep using. Like there are consequences. There are rules that you have to follow. And if you don't follow them, then yeah, you are removed from the residence like it's not like yeah it doesn't have to be a handout it can be to be super cliche about it a hand up and um you know and and it can also be a space where okay the this is the living situation and you have 
responsibilities and and rules to follow and you do have uh, money that you have to pay for it. But that's also now a facility that you can run programs out of that creates accessibility to meaningful treatment rather than accessibility to drugs. Yeah, agreed. And I think on that note, that's about it for today. That's about it for today. Because I think I'm thoroughly dehydrated. <laughs> oh, yeah. Jesus. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> and my clothes are now saturated. So, yes. Okay, yeah, so that's everything for Who Knew We Didn't. Thank you, Megan, for sweltering in this fucking car with me. Back at ya. I picked the location, so... (laughs) Um, and just wanted to remind you guys that if you have any comments, concerns, if you want to like contribute to our conversation at all, just like reach out. Yeah. yeah, reach out. We're who knew we didn't everywhere. We're on Instagram, Facebook. We have an email who knew we didn't at gmail.com and we have a Patreon page. Yeah, we do. So we don't like expect you guys to pay us money, but if you want to pay us if money, if you were so inclined, that'd be really cool. And we got some perks. Yeah. We got some perks for people who want to do that. Yeah. We have, we're, offering postcards we're offering t-shirts Megan's actually wearing a t-shirt that I've screen printed before yeah it's not a who knew we didn't but it's ballin yeah so they like the t-shirts would be handmade which I think is really cool and I actually just like really want to make people (laughs) (laughs) t-shirts yeah uh anyway that's it that's that's plugging corner yeah right there and thank you for listening and see you guys next week bye bye